0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the CODcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm Josh Fairchild, your host. I'm Jim Aloisi, your co-host. Today we're joined by Michael Manville. He's an assistant professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Welcome. Um, Jim, did you, you said you wanted to get started? Sure. Sure.
1: Welcome, Professor Manville. Do um, you prefer Mike or Professor? Uh, Mike is Mike best. Mike is good, yeah. and I understand you're, you, you are uh, teaching at UCLA, but you're a native, a local native, correct? That's right. I grew up in Reading yeah. and uh, went to Holy Cross for undergrad. And you were telling me yesterday, if you don't mind my sharing, your, your, your family is a, a sort of longtime uh, readers of Commonwealth Magazine, right? Yeah, they have been, absolutely. So this is sort of uh, all things converge now
2: with this podcast. Right, broadcast. exactly.
1: So being from Los Angeles, a lot of our listeners probably have the view uh, that if you want to find the nation's worst traffic congestion, you would fly from Boston to Los Angeles and you would experience it there. Uh, There is some data from an outfit called INRIX that suggests that actually if you measure the percentage of peak hour time spent in gridlock, that Boston is actually the most congested area in the the nation. And so we're going to have a discussion with Mike Manville today about the topic of traffic congestion, uh, what it means, how it's a drag on our economy, how it's a drag on mobility, how it pollutes the environment, but more importantly, what can we do? What are the tools in the toolbox uh, to address traffic congestion? And so just to to start this off, how about coming up with a definition of traffic congestion for the listeners?
2: Uh, Sure. I mean, I think the easiest way to think about it is that traffic congestion is excess demand for scarce road space. That what basically happens when you have traffic congestion is that there are too many people Trying to drive in the same place at the same time, there's not enough road for them, and you, what you get is a is a line or a queue. Um, it's kind of a moving queue, but that queue is what we call congestion.
1: And one of the ways in which people try to address this, of course, is to talk about congestion pricing, yes. and using a, a, a sort of a monetary uh, approach to reducing congestion. Let's talk a little bit about your thinking and and views on the tools. That can be effectively used to manage and reduce traffic congestion, starting with pricing.
2: Sure, and uh, frankly, ending with pricing. Um, the <laughs> the reason why I and a lot of people in my business really like congestion pricing as a policy is that it really is it both conceptually and empirically, it's the only thing that's ever been shown to reduce traffic congestion. And to sort of to explain why, I think it's helpful to understand. There's a lot of different ways to understand why, where congestion comes from. You know, an engineer will tell you about friction of vehicles moving between lanes and so forth. But fundamentally, um, I, I come a little bit more from an, an economist perspective. We have traffic congestion because our roads are underpriced, and actually they're really underpriced. The price of driving on our roads is zero. You know, if you decide to get on Route 93 at 8 a.m., uh, that costs you nothing. Um, It's the same price if you decide to get on 93 at noon or at midnight. And what that suggests is that we have some very valuable land, right? The roads that provide you access to to Boston or greater Boston are extremely valuable because they're what get you to high-paying jobs, to great universities, to great cultural institutions, um, just to see your friends, to our great hospitals, all that stuff. Um, We give that away for free. And anyone who has ever suffered through an introductory economics class knows that if you have something that a lot of people want and you hold the price down below what we would call a market clearing price, but basically when you hold the price at zero, uh, you're going to get a shortage. And that's the shortage of road that we call congestion. And so when you're thinking about ways to fix congestion, the first question you should ask yourself is, uh, does this address that fundamental problem? that we have this scarce good that a lot of people want that right now is is essentially too inexpensive. And a lot of the solutions that we've used over the past four, five, six decades to battle congestion have the virtue of being very politically appealing, but they're politically appealing precisely because they make driving less expensive, right? That we want to add a lane to a freeway. Um, We want to build a commuter rail next to the freeway. Uh, and so on and so forth. They don't demand any change in behavior of drivers, and they leave this valuable land underpriced. And as a result, they don't really work very well. And so the reason why folks like me like congestion pricing is because it does fix that fundamental problem.
1: And you have there are there are examples that we can point to, or that you can point to globally, presumably maybe even nationally, but certainly globally, where pricing has been proven to be quite effective at
2: reducing congestion. That's right. So uh, the oldest example is in Singapore. Um, uh, Singapore, of course, does not have some of the political constraints that the United States does. Uh, the government decides to do something and pretty much do it. But Singapore has used some form of congestion pricing since the 1970s. And today, uh, Singapore is a city that's about as dense as San Francisco and if you get on a highway there, uh, you can always drive about 55 miles an hour. Um, more recently, London started using a form of congestion pricing in 2003. On the first day that uh, that it was in place, the congestion went down in London by about 35%. Uh, Stockholm has used it to great success. Milan in Italy has used it. Uh, and a number of our toll roads in the United States, particularly out west and in the south, um, now, use have some lanes that are dynamically priced and they move traffic very effectively. Uh, there's a toll road in San Diego County whose price changes every six minutes to maintain in sort of an optimal flow. And
1: you know, so, you know. we're talking just to, for clarification, sure. What's, what, what's going on in, for example, London or Stockholm, I'm not sure about Singapore, but certainly London and Stockholm is what I think is sometimes called cordon pricing that's right or go zone so that. Rather, it's not a toll highway as much as it's a zone, an area demarcated within a, a usually typically an urban environment. If you, if you enter that zone, you are priced. That's right. And then a different way to think about pricing is an interstate highway where there is, there is a, a pricing regime uh, adopted that says if you are driving on this highway during these conditions or these times – uh, then
2: you will be priced accordingly. That's absolutely right. So in, in London, um, the, the financial district, which is called, somewhat confusingly, the City of London, uh, in the early 2000s, the Transport for London, which was the, the, the agency to overseas transportation there, did a study that showed that traffic into City of London was slower in 2002, 2003 than it had been in 1902. I mean, that's how bad the congestion was. And so they just put in place this cordon that basically says if you cross a boundary, you paid the equivalent of, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was about $12. Uh, and so it was just a simple, you pay to get in, and that drove the congestion down. What would make a lot more sense um, in a lot of American metropolitan areas that don't necessarily have a lot of activity just clustered in one area uh, is, is the freeway pricing. And what that would be is it's what we call a performance price which is to say that the, the purpose of the pricing is not to set a price and raise revenue, it's to set a performance standard. So the government would say, we just want this freeway to always be moving at 55 miles an hour. And then the price is determined by that, by, that, by meeting that standard. So the lowest price that lets you always drive at 55 is the price of the toll. So at, at off-peak hours, it could be nothing. Whereas at eight a.m. it might be. That's quite another way
1: of saying yeah. the price is determined by the marketplace. Exactly.
0: So the so um, cordon cordon pricing, uh, congestion fees, uh, or tolls that accomplish the same thing are sort of they're all the same. We're just using different words to get to the same place. It sounds like.
2: Yeah, I, they're they're different terms. I mean, I think that the the cordon price often in practice doesn't vary a lot by time of day, uh, although it could. Um, but yeah, they're they're the same general idea, or the same underlying. They're attacking the same underlying problem, which is that we have been running essentially a, a giant system of rent control for automobiles, um, and in, and that's what leads to the shortages and the misallocation of space and so forth. And if we want to fix that, that's the problem you have to attack.
0: So anything that adds adds cost, adds a price um, to driving would probably accomplish basically the same goal. I'm thinking like carbon impact fees or something like that, except for they wouldn't they wouldn't attach to, you know, electric vehicles. Um, but they would also increase the cost of driving. But I'm just trying to make the distinction between all the things that we hear about.
2: Right. So keep in mind that the goal of congestion pricing, right, is to reduce congestion. And so that means that the increased price has to be tied to the times and places where people most want to drive. So you could have a carbon tax on transportation and what you would, you know, but the fact is that that would probably impact a car driving at noon about the same as it would drive, as it would impact a car driving at midnight. right? It wouldn't matter how busy the road was. Um, you could raise the gas tax and that would make driving more expensive, but it wouldn't necessarily mean people wouldn't be on 93 at 8 a.m. Um, if you just did uh, carbon taxation or gas taxation, then if someone had an electric vehicle they could still create a lot of congestion because an electric vehicle is still a big, clunky object that takes up space. So the, the key to congestion pricing is that the price rises when congestion rises. And that makes it a little bit different than taxing gasoline, taxing carbon, or even just taxing VMT.
0: So, um, so right now in Boston, we, it's not that there's not a price to driving because people pay with their time instead of with money. Uh, relative to another mode share that they could choose. Also, parking is pretty expensive in downtown Boston, so there's two ways of, of having price here. But you're sort of flipping the script, it seems like, and, and saying, you know, rather than trying to drive mode share, trying to drive people to say our goal is such percentage of folks taking um, transit, instead the goal is simply to have free-flowing or whatever standard we set for maybe 45 miles an hour or whatever it is going to be, average speed on the freeways. Um, and so to the extent you achieve that, uh, transit, an increase in transit usage would just be an externality of that.
2: I think that's right. And I think it's, it's also the kind of transit use that you probably want, right? I mean, I could – the, the transit commute share in the United States is so low right now, right, that I could, if I was an omnipotent central planner, I could double it just by saying that everybody who currently walks to work should take transit, right? That would give us more transit ridership, but that's not what we want. Right. Transit has the sort of environmental benefits that we, that we envision for it because we envision people not driving by taking transit. So what that means is that simply boosting transit ridership is not intrinsically beneficial unless you happen to run the transit agency, in which case you're getting more revenue. Right. What we want from our environmental goals, from our personal safety goals, at the end of the day is less driving. Right. And so one way to achieve less driving or one outcome of less driving is probably more transit use, right? But there's no evidence right now that more transit use leads to less driving or less congestion. At least in the long term. It could have, maybe it might have an
1: immediate short-term effect, but I take your point that, like the tide coming in, eventually more drivers will just keep congesting the road. I could see a driver saying, look, I don't want you to price me, and I would take an alternative like like a rail, mm-hmm. if, a, if a reliable alternative was available to me? And the answer is typically here, at least, that's not the case. But I could see using the, 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 the funds generated from pricing to actually provide that driver with the kind of reliable modal alternative that he or she is looking for, and thereby you begin to level the playing field a little bit.
2: So the playing field gets leveled, When you stop giving away some of the most valuable land in the world to drivers, that's what levels the playing field. I think that's a nice way to put it, and people need to understand that's the core of the issue. What does it? I mean, because, honestly, you look at Hong Kong, you look at New York, you look at Shanghai, incredibly sophisticated, comprehensive transit systems. I'm talking New York like 10 years ago before everything started to fall apart, right? And what's on top of them? Clogged streets, Right. I mean, there's congestion will lead people to take transit. Transit will not reduce congestion, right? Transit has so many important roles to play, right? It's an it, absolutely vital social service for mobility disadvantaged people in our country. It increases the quality of life. It, it can do wonderful things for urban development. It would be impossible to have your Manhattans, your downtown Bostons, your Philadelphias, that wonderful urban form without public transportation. But public transportation has been put in a very difficult position in the last 30 years by being forced to sell itself as a way to make driving easier. Right, as go, by having to go to the majority of voters who often fund it, right, and say, if you build public transit, your highway commute will be easier. It can't keep that promise, and eventually that's going to catch up with it.
1: I want to ask you, though, uh, many people listening to this podcast that might be listening while they're driving sure, uh, are driving on Interstate 90, which is a toll road. So mm-hmm. they're going to say, well, you're wrong, Professor Manville. We're, it's not free. We're paying for it now, or they may be crossing the bridge. So how do, we, how do you address folks in Massachusetts who may not be using Interstate
2: 93, which is cost-free? hmm um, versus um, the turnpike? So yeah, so I think, you know, the, the turnpike is, I guess the first thing I would say is one of a very small fraction of roads in both greater Boston and the United States that, that has any kind of toll on it. And I would also say that it has the exactly wrong kind of toll, right? There's, there's two ways to look at tolling. One is that the toll is a way for the government to raise revenue. And the second is that the toll is a way for the government to make sure the road works. Right. And so if you're on the Mass Pike right now or the, the New Jersey Turnpike, and it's just every once in a while for no particular reason that's obvious to you, you drive under a gantry. Maybe you crawl under a gantry if it's rush hour and the government takes a couple bucks from you. You very justifiably feel like you're being treated unfairly and you're getting nothing for something. Right. You're paying money. And what are you getting in return? You know, um, we
0: get the road that was built 30 years ago. Right. Right, we're paying off the bonds. That's what we're doing.
2: Sure. And and but if you're sitting there, right, and with the with your hands on the wheel, what you're thinking to yourself is, well, why aren't they doing that in 93? Why aren't they doing that on 128? Right. What am I getting out of this? Why can't we pay for this with taxes or something like that? Um, a congestion toll. You know, if you, if you look at the sort of the economic model of a congestion toll, the revenue isn't there at all that that to an economist uh, and this is you know one reason why people think economists are weird you could you could all the billions of dollars congestion pricing would raise you could take it and dump it in the harbor right because the the benefit the overwhelming benefit comes from the fact that you have gotten rid of the congestion and made the road work now in uh, i'll come back to this because in reality of course nobody wants to dump the revenue in the harbor no we just dumped tea in the harbor yeah. Yeah. but so. the important point not for a long time um, <laughs> the important point is that There's a lot of ways to raise revenue, and tolls really aren't a great way to raise revenue, right? The gas tax is a better way to raise revenue. It has way lower administrative costs. There's a lot of ways to raise revenue. There's only one way to get rid of congestion. And so what's basically, the the mass pike is told just to sort of take some money out of the wallets of the people who use it, and and probably for a good reason, because you have to pay the road off, but that builds resentment because people don't see what they're getting in return. If you have a toll where someone pays it and in return they don't have congestion, well that looks a lot more like a fee for service. So
1: what you're talking about is smarter tolling. You're saying let's, let's move to an approach that's smarter and strategic and that provides people with the real service that they're looking for. And the real service that they're looking for is not simply a a paved surface to put their car on. It's a paved service that they can drive their car on at reasonably swift rates. And I would, I'd say, I'd ask people to think about this. If a private sector company came in and built a toll road on its own and managed it as a private sector business, it would engage in smart tolling because it would want to provide its customers with that sort of performance metric of a fairly
2: rapid, uncongested drive. I think that's right, and let me, let me just add to that. Um, that a private sector company would do that, but you don't even have to look to the private sector to do this, and sometimes I feel like we valorize, I mean, I like the private sector quite a bit, but I feel, sometimes I feel like we valorize it a little too much and forget that our government can do things well too, right, and it, you do not you can just look at other utilities. The roads are a utility, right, they're a piece of our public infrastructure, They're the only piece of public infrastructure we have, for the most part, that doesn't meter use, right? Like, we have meters for our gas, for our heating oil, for our electricity, and it should tell us something that we don't, twice a day, have blackouts. We don't, twice a day, have the heat shut off. We don't, twice a day, see our toilets back up. We do, twice a day or more, see our road system fail from overuse, right? And that's because we give it away for free. I mean, this is this is a very pro-driver policy. It's saying to drivers, we are going to step up, we're going to make some hard political decisions, but what we're going to do is deliver you, probably for the first time in memory, a quality public service.
0: I, this is great. I have two obstacles to put in your path. And if you can overcome the first, Only then let's two. talk about the second here. Um, so, just a little ways south of us in, in New York City, it kind of sounded like they were on the verge of implementing congestion pricing. Um, although Mayor de Blasio has now said, um, I believe, I didn't read the whole article, but it sounds like he's saying, well, I'm opposed now to congestion pricing because uh, it's not a level playing field because a lot of poor people have cars too, and we shouldn't charge them more. Uh, whereas right now, everybody can ride, you know, be on the streets for free. So what, what would you say to that? It seems like it's unfair.
2: Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But what, what Mayor de Blasio is referring to is that basically a congestion charge is regressive, right? The, it's a market price for using the road. And so if it costs $5 to clear the road and go 55 that $5 is – it means a lot more to someone who makes $10,000 a year than someone who makes $100. Um, absolutely no question. And I think that there's, there's two answers to that uh, or maybe even three. So the first is um, the very poorest people don't drive, right? And so this is regressive through the driving population. But we shouldn't forget that right now we trap a lot of people who ride buses in congestion that is not of their making, and this would be a big benefit for them.
1: And Can I just say, within the inner core of greater Boston, there are places like East Boston, for example, or Chelsea, where over 30% of the population does not have access to a vehicle because of
2: income issues. Right. The, the second thing I would say is that there's very, you know, recognizing that there's a lot of low-income drivers, because there are, um, there are very few other areas of social policy where we look at low-income people and say, the solution to this is that everything should be free to everyone, right? I mean, the, if you have low income, you have a hard time affording driving. You also have a hard time affording food. You have a hard time affording your heating oil. And what we do with that it's, it's well within our means to do it, is identify those folks and we give them help. We give them food stamps, we give them lifeline subsidies for heating oil and electricity. In my personal opinion all of those should be more generous, but that's what we do. There's no reason at all we couldn't do it with roads, especially because congestion pricing would raise an awful lot of revenue. You could carve out a portion of that and make people whole who are going to suffer from it. And the last point I'll make about the fairness issue I mean, I could go on about it for quite a while, but the last big point I'll make is that it is true that if we priced our roads, this would probably disproportionately benefit higher income people. They, they tend to have higher values of time on average. It's easier for them to pay. Uh, it's important to remember that free roads disproportionately benefit higher income people. right? Even with the road being free, driving is expensive. You need gas, you need insurance, you need a vehicle. People who have more money do more driving. They do much more driving at busy times. If you look at the census of when when people leave for work, if you look at the National Household Travel Survey about who's on our freeways at peak hours, low-income people are badly underrepresented. People making over $150,000 a year are overrepresented. The free roads are not an important subsidy for low-income people, right? Free roads are a subsidy for high-income people that some low-income people use. If we actually want to advance equity in transportation, we need to target low-income people. And that probably means removing some subsidies for the affluent. So the, the,
0: the next, and I guess this will be the last question. We'll have a few minutes. Uh, the next objection would be, okay, so let's say we decide to implement this. Um, and on day one, uh, now we're charging, I don't know, let's say $10 um, to, to use the roads um, if you are going to drive your personal vehicle. And um, now people have a choice where transit hasn't improved on day one, so they don't really have a lot of good options other than to just pay. Um, how do we how do we get to having real alternatives for people? Is there a way to make the, do this gradually? What about other, other cities? I, like I know that London has I think so two billion at least raised um, from from these congestion fees back into their transportation system. But mm-hmm. people would say, well, they started off with a pretty good transportation system.
2: Well, er- everything's relative because if you're in LA, people look at Boston and say, you guys got a pretty good transportation system. Uh, but I take your point. Um, I think it's a lot of us who work in the transportation planning field and we got into the transportation planning field, we think instinctively about transit. Uh, And I think it it can be hard for us to remember that most Americans don't and that the first alternative to driving someplace by yourself for most people is not public transportation. And so, you know, the the public transportation is is 2% of all American trips. It's 2% of all passenger miles traveled, and 40% of those are in New York City. Like, this is not something most people think about. And so if the price of driving goes up, you're much more likely to see people carpool. Um, and the other, the other thing to remember is some trips just either don't have to be made or don't have to be made at that time, right? So when you're suddenly hit with, and I don't think it would be $10, frankly, in Boston, but like, say you're hit with a $10 toll um, what you might say to yourself is, I'm going to figure out, you know, my neighbor also works in downtown Boston. I'm going to carpool with them. It's worth it to me now to make that coordination problem work because I have a $10 toll. Uh, or they might say, um, I was going to get on the freeway just to go pick up, like, some, something from an errand. I don't have to do that at 8 a.m. I'll wait till 11 and save a bunch of money. Like congestion, I guess this is the last point related to that. It's a very nonlinear process. Right, it's, uh, it's the last few vehicles entering a freeway that are responsible for most of the delay. So you could look at how crowded 93 is, and it, it, what's, what's easy to forget is that you really only have to toll a few of those cars off to get a really big increase in performance. And so you don't have to price off lots of people, which means you don't have to confront lots of people with like, what's my alternative?
1: Well, I think this was an important conversation. Josh, I'm thinking we might consider actually doing a couple of follow-up podcasts this year on this topic because uh, this is a good beginning, but we can drill down a little bit more on this and talk to people more about the importance of We're having a congestion crisis in greater Boston. People know it. It's happening in real time every day. And the importance of smart tolling and strategic tolling is something we should uh, definitely delve into. So thank you, Professor. Thanks for having me. Thank you.